Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and we're actually going to be just looking at the first portion of the chapter, and I entitled it, How to Recognize the Children of God. I just have a quick question. You can raise your hands. How many of you sinned this morning before you came? (laughs) Uh, There's a few honest people here. The rest of you are liars. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Listen, do you ever, like, doubt your salvation as far as, man, I've sinned the umpteenth time. I can't believe I did this again and again and again. And you you start going, man, I wonder wonder if I'm really saved or not. I mean, after all that. Well, I'm here to tell you, If you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and that he rose again from the dead, and if you have personally confessed your sin and surrendered your life to Christ, you are born again. You are born again. And in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, John addresses the reality of what you and what I what I are. We are the children of God. So let's take a look at this. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So the very first thing that you and I need to understand, and again, John's epistle, he writes with certainty about things that we need to know as believers. We need to be certain of these things. And we've talked about a few in the last couple chapters. And today, John wants you and I to know, if you are a born-again believer, that you are a child of God this morning. Now, I know there are people that are not believers, people that just say, we're all God's children. Have you ever heard that before? We're all God's children. That's not true. We're not all God's children. That's not so. You know, there's only two types of people in the world. When you boil down everything, there's two types of people. There's only two differences that matter. And it's not your skin color. It's not whether you're wealthy or whether you're poor, whether you're a male or whether you're a female, whether you're a slave or whether you're free, whether you're a liberal or a conservative. Those things don't matter. And I know those things divide people. 
But those things don't matter. There's only two differences that matter, and that's whether you're saved or whether you're unsaved. That, that's all it is. It boils, that's what it boils down to, is whether you are born again or not born again. And if you are saved, the Bible says you are a child of God. If you are unsaved, and here's where it gets kind of, ooh, you're a child of the devil. <laughs> that sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? But that's the reality of Scripture. So, how do we become children of God? Look at verse 1, the first part. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. We are children of God only because the Father loves us. It's not like we did something to become the children of God. It's only because of his love. And John is, is reflecting on that, and he's expressing it to, that, to us with amazement, because he says, Behold what manner of love. What manner of love? That means what sort or what quality of love. Now, I don't have to tell you, you probably know it yourself, that you and I have a sin nature, you know, and, and because of the sin nature in us, we, us, we have a hard time loving one another. We do. Our, 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 our flesh gets in the way. Our personalities get in the way. We have, a, it's difficult to love someone with a sin nature. But that's not the case with our Heavenly Father. He loves us in spite of our sinful nature. John 17, verse 23, Jesus is praying to the Father before he goes to the cross. And as he's praying, he makes this statement. It's in verse 23. I'm not going to quote it. But he says, basically, as the Father has loved the Son, to the same degree the Father loves you and I, his adopted children. Isn't that amazing? Think of how much the Father loves the Son to the same degree He loves you and I, His adopted children. Now, I can really relate to this verse in one sense because I have an adopted child. I adopted one of our children. And, you know, I sometimes have to remind myself that they're adopted. Because I love them, I love them as I love my other children. I mean, there's no difference. In fact, very often I forget that they're adopted. I just, but the reality is they are. That's the way the Father loves you and I. It's not like, you know, he just, he loves us as he loves the Father. John in his gospel said this in John chapter 1 verse 12 and 13. He says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Putting your trust in Jesus as your Savior, confessing your sins, repenting of them, that means turning away from them, making him the Lord of your life, man, you are born again, you are a child of God. But then he continues in the second half of verse 1, and he says, therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. See, unbelievers do not recognize you and I, the children of God. Why? Because they don't recognize the Father. You know, you can recognize children of a parent if you know the parent. If you're very familiar with the parent and you see their children, you go, ah, you're the son of so-and-so or you're the daughter of so-and-so. We can recognize children if we know their parents. There's a physical resemblance in, in many, many cases. In other cases, it's not only physical, but it's the same mannerisms. They talk the same. They act the same. And if you don't know the parent, 
it's really hard to figure out if they're the son or the daughter of so-and-so because you don't know the, the father or the, or, the do- or the mother or anything like that. So you can recognize children of a parent if you know the parent. Well, then the next verse, he answers a question, and the next verse is, when do we become children of God? Look at verse 2. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I love the way John starts this verse. Beloved. Beloved. Because the Father loves you, and because of the quality of the Father's love, there is no waiting period. There's no probation. It's like, you know, um, if you were to join a motorcycle club, like in one of those outlaw clubs, you know, you want to become a member of, you know, Hell's Angels or something like that, you have to first, you're first a prospect. That's what they call it. And, and so you basically spend time with the club, and once they figure that you're worthy, then you get the full patch, you know. Not so with our Heavenly Father. Not so with our Heavenly Father. We are now the children of God. That's amazing to me. And you may not feel like a child of God this morning. You know, maybe you got in a fight with your spouse this morning or, you know, or somehow you did something and somebody cut you off in traffic. Sunday mornings is really not that many. Usually it's, traffic's kind of wide open on Sunday mornings, but you know what I mean. You know, you may not feel like a child of God, but the reality is you are now. You are right now, this morning, if you're truly born again. But right now, we don't see the finished product. I don't see the finished product in me. I don't see it in you necessarily. Look at the second half of verse 2. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When he's revealed, when we are before him, we're going to see him face to face. The Bible says right now, we see with the eyes of faith, right? Has anybody here seen Jesus personally? No, nobody has. We see him through the eyes of faith. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. I can't wait for that day. That's going to be a glorious day. When we see him face to face, we're going to reflect his glory. It's like, you know, now, you know, and I look around the room and I can tell when people have been outside under the sun, right? Because they're, they got this glow. They got this, they're reflecting the, the glow from the sun on their skin. Think about Moses when he went up to Mount, on Mount Sinai. He spent 40 days in the presence of God. And then he came down off the mountain. Man, his face was poof, on fire. It was glowing, basically. That's what it's going to be like for you and I when we come face to face with our Father. You know, Solomon, King Solomon, he started out really well in his walk, didn't he, with his life? Young man, you know, he was David's son. He took over the kingdom of, of Israel on behalf of his father, David, who was, who was about ready to, he was passing away, basically. And he had a heart for God. He started out well. You know, he wanted to, uh, the Lord said, ask anything and I'll give it to you. And he said, Lord, I need wisdom to rule these people. I need wisdom. And God said, oh, man, what a good request. I'm not paraphrasing, but, you know, since you, you didn't ask for wealth, you didn't ask for long life, you didn't ask for vengeance on your enemies, I'm going to give you wisdom, and I'm going to give you wealth on top of that. And so Solomon's finished, or started well, but when you read in scriptures, he didn't finish quite well. When we're told when he was old, his many foreign wives turned his heart 
from serving the Lord to turning to their idols. So he started out well, but he didn't finish well. And some believers, they put their trust in Christ. They're born again. They're a child of God. And they start out well. Man, they're on fire for the Lord. They're in fellowship and they're growing. They're reading the word. But something happens. And they start kind of drifting away. And sometimes they don't finish well. I've known believers that have not necessarily finished well. But if they're born again and they are in the presence of the Lord, now all that flesh is gone. All that sin is dealt with. They're in the presence of the Lord and they're going to reflect His glory. Well, the good news is you and I don't have to wait until we see our Heavenly Father to resemble Him. We can do that right now. How do we do that? You know, the Bible says the Word of God is a mirror. Have you ever gotten, you know, like part of your day, you've gone through your day, and then you you happen to walk by a mirror or a window, and all of a sudden you go, oh, I didn't realize, you know. Oh, man, I didn't realize that. Uh, I've shared this before, but for a while I get on these kicks of these different health food type things, and for 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 a while I was drinking this this concoction with turmeric. It's called golden milk. It's good stuff for you. It's it's uh, uh, well, anyways, it's good. I'm not going to get on that, but anyways, it's really yellow. <laughs> and one time I drank, and you know I've got this problem with this cookie crumb cookie duster thing, and. And uh, I went to bed. I had it at night. I went to bed. Next morning, my granddaughter, she came to our house. She goes, Opa, your mustache is yellow. <laughs> and I had to go look in the mirror. I'm like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. I had this yellow strike. You know, you know like when you, when you drink milk, you get a milk mustache. I had a turmeric mustache. I'm like, okay. Sometimes we just don't realize what we look like until we look in the mirror and we go, oh, wow, you know. The Word of God's a mirror. When you and I read the Word of God, it shows you, man, you got egg on your face. <laughs> you know, it, Something's out of place there. That's what the Word of God does. So for you and I, as we're reading the Word of God, it will reveal to us our inadequacies, our shortcomings. And it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing because we can do something about it at that point. So reading the Word of God... Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. I love that. The more you're in the Word of God, and not just reading the Word of God, but allowing the Word of God to transform you, allowing the Holy Spirit to work in your life, to to sanctify you, to guide you, to to teach you, to correct you, you are going to start reflecting the Lord more and more in this life. That's our goal. I love it in the book of Acts, when Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin. Jesus has already ascended into heaven, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's like in Acts chapter 4. So it's a couple chapters after Pentecost. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And they're, they're going around and they're ministering. And, and they get called in before the, the Sanhedrin. And they're questioned about, uh, about their faith. And Peter and John, and I think it's mainly Peter at that point, is just sharing a sharing about the Lord. And it, it says this in verse 13 of chapter 4. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized they had been with Jesus. You and I, we can spend time with the Lord right now. We're, no, we're not going to see him face to face yet. 
but we can spend time in his word, in prayer, and allowing the Holy Spirit to minister in our lives. And we can, in this life right now, we can reflect the Lord much more than maybe we are even now. So what does the reality that we are the children of God mean for us? Okay, we're the children of God. Okay, what about it? Well, verse 3, he says this. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What is this hope? Notice that it's this hope is in him. It's in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, apart from Jesus Christ, we have no hope. We really have no hope. Our hope comes from our relationship with Jesus Christ. And our hope is his, in his return for us. That's referring to the rapture of the church. Or our going to him at our death. Because either he's going to come for us and take us to him, or we might die before the rapture occurs and we're going to go to him. Either way, we're going to be in the Lord's presence at some point. And so John says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who has this hope of being in Christ's presence then has an incentive for purity now. Purity, that word in the Bible, hagenizo, it refers to being pure from camp, uh, contamination. And it's referring to, like in the, in the sense of ceremonial washings. For example, like the priests, they would cleanse themselves. They would wash themselves uh, to remove any contamination or to sanctify themselves before they went into the temple to serve the Lord. And so this is what that word is kind of a picture of what it's referring to. It's a picture of being cleansed from contamination of the heart. This guy's not as concerned if your hands are literally dirty. It's your heart that he's concerned with. And of course, we can't cleanse ourselves from our sins, right? I can't cleanse myself from my sins. But what John is referring to is the process of sanctification in the believer's life. It means living a life free from the contamination and pollution of sin and being set apart for him. I like what J. Vernon McGee said. How you live your life down here determines whether or not you are really looking for the Lord to come. Isn't that true? If we're anxious for the Lord, if we're, if we're looking, if, we're, if our eyes are focused on eternity, it's going to affect how we live our lives today. So what does sanctification entail? Well, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That is, what that's referring to is daily setting ourselves apart for Christ. Maybe the first thing you do before your, before your feet hit the floor is making that determination, saying, Lord, I'm giving you this day. I'm giving you myself. I'm laying my life down as a living sacrifice. It's a daily, it's a daily action we take. It's a daily renewing our minds. Man, our minds get, after a while, you know, you, you, you're hearing news, you're watching things, you're hearing things, you're in the workplace or wherever it is. Man, it, things, you, after a while, it's like, man, you need to brainwash. <laughs> Literally, you know, it's like you've got to renew your mind. So that's one part of sanctification. Another aspect is what Paul wrote in Ephesians 6.11. He says to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. It's talking about resisting sin, fleeing from the devil. 
resisting, saying no to sin. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul says this, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. So maybe in your situation, it's who or what you're keeping company with. Maybe that you need to get away from because they're dragging you down or it is dragging you down. If your company is, you know, the media or whatever, you know, things are dragging you down. It might, but that's all part of sanctification. So, but then John talks about something that, you know, we, when I read through verses 1 through 10, talks about how the children of God, they don't sin, right? I'm like, oh, wait, wait a minute. I sin. I know I sin. What about that? And so what about sin in the life of the child of God? And John's going to address that now. And there's a flow of thought in the next few verses. I'm going to pull out some points out of each of those verses. And when you combine them together, then John says, this is why. So I want to uh, just follow with me here. Verse 4. First thing he says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Now the Bible describes all kinds of sin. There's all kinds of different sins. John is not talking about all these different kinds of sins. John is here is talking about the root of sin. And sin at its root, at its very basic level, is lawlessness. It's a violation of God's law. That's what lawlessness is. It's a rebellion against God's law. It's a, a, a trespass or a transgression. The point is it's willful rebellion. Now, I know the Bible also uses a term that we call, talk about missing the mark, right? Sin, sin was like you're shooting an arrow at a target and you miss, you sinned. Um, and, and a lot of times, that's the, that's the word I like to choose. You know, I missed the mark. You know, I, I just missed it. I, I, I failed. I made a mistake or something like that. And sometimes it's pretty easy for us to soft pedal our sin, isn't it? I know for me it is. You know, it's an interesting thing as I was preparing this. I thought, you know... It's really interesting, and you know, it's sad to say, but there have been some high-profile pastors in ministries that have had to step down because of sin. But what's interesting is a lot of times when you read about it, you know what they, they describe it? They had a moral failing. A moral failing, a moral failing. What does that mean? You know, when somebody else does it, it's like they committed adultery. <laughs> they fell into sin, you know. They, they blew it, you know. They did this or that. But, but it's like, why do we call it a moral failing in some cases? Well, sin at its very basic, basic root level, it's a willful violation of God's law. It's a choice a person makes. So the first point John wants to make here, sin at its root is willful rebellion. Willful rebellion. The next thing he says in verse 5, he says this, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. So the whole purpose for Jesus Christ being manifested in this world was not so that you could have your best life now. That's not his purpose. He didn't come so that you can have your best life now. Although, although, there is no better life to live than to live your life for Christ. So it's true. It's a better life. But that's not why Jesus came and lived and died, so that you could have a good life. It was also not so you could have a purpose-driven life. Although, with Christ, you have purpose in your life. There is a purpose to living. There's a, there's a hope. There's a goal that we're reaching for. So there is a purpose to that. But that, again, is not why Jesus Christ died on the cross. It was not so that you could be healthy and prosperous. Although, 
healing is possible in Jesus Christ. He heals. He does heal. And the Lord does choose to bless some of his people with material wealth and success for a purpose. He does those things. But that's not why Jesus Christ came to live and die on the cross. The purpose for Jesus Christ being manifested was to take away our sins. That was why he came, to take away your and my sins. That's the, our greatest need. Our greatest need is to have our sins dealt with. How did he do that? The Bible says he did that when he wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And he did that in his person. When the Bible says, when he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. So the born-again child of God has had his or her sins taken away. In fact, the Bible even says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from him. And then he makes his next comment, and in him there is no sin. So he's made these different comments. And to sum it up, the first point, sin at its root, is a willful rebellion against God's law. That's what sin is at its base. Second point is that Jesus Christ came to earth to take away our sins. And the third point is there is no sin in him. So the reason why John made those points is because of verse 6a. Whoever abides in him does not sin. As we've been going through John, I've been talking, First John, I've been talking about it. To abide, it's, it means to be in fellowship with. Remember from John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So if you and I are in fellowship with him, Jesus Christ, who in him there is no sin, and we're in fellowship with him and he took away our sin, then we're not going to be in a state of willful rebellion against God's commands. If you're truly born again, you can't be in willful rebellion against the Lord God. The second half of chapter of verse 6, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now the Greek, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but the Greek tense of this word means keeps on sinning. Whoever keeps on sinning has neither seen him nor known him. And that applies, implies abiding in sin. Whoever is abiding in lawlessness, willful rebellion against God's laws, has neither seen him or known him. Now, we have not physically seen the Father, but we do see Jesus Christ in scriptures. And he's, the Bible says he's the ex express image of the Father. We see the Father spiritually as a result, but not physically, yet we will. And we have come to know Christ in this life. If you've given your life to Christ, you've come to know him through faith. You get to know him even more through the word. And then you have the indwelling Holy Spirit in you who's testifying, who's giving you a testimony of Jesus Christ. And so to know Christ as the believer knows him, as you and I know him, to see Christ as we see him, to be in fellowship with him who's sinless, we can't remain in a condition of willful rebellion against our Savior. It's just, it's just not, it's, it's not possible. If someone is in a state of perpetual willful rebellion against God, and they're not convicted of their sin, I mean, I sin, I get convicted of my sin, but if they're in willful rebellion 
There's no conviction. There's no chastening from the Lord. You really have to wonder, maybe they're not born again. Maybe they're just deceiving themselves. Verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And I have to think that John was probably dealing with some false teachings that was going around in the church in the later half of the, the later part of that century. There must have been these false teachers who, who were basically communicating, saying, you know, you can remain in willful rebellion against God and still consider yourself a child of God. Is that, that, whole, that whole ideology, we're all God's children. And John is making a point, no, you're not. So how can we tell the difference between the child of God and the child of the devil? Look at verse 8. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Now, back in verse 7, he who is righteous, and you're made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? It's nothing that we do. It's what Jesus Christ has done. Verse 7, he who is righteous does righteousness. And that word does is poeo. And translated here in the New King James, it practices righteousness. He who is righteous practices righteousness. Here in verse 8, he who is of the devil sins. And that word sins, it's the exact same Greek word, poeo. And in the King James Version, not the New King James, which I'm reading from, it's committeth sin. So he who is righteous does righteousness, does righteous things. He who is of the devil commits sin, does sin. It's the exact same Greek word. In other words, you either practice righteousness as a child of God or you practice sin because you're of the devil. There's an interesting observation that Augustine, Augustine excuse me, made. He said this, The devil made no one. He begot no one. He created no one. But whoever imitates the devil is, as it were, a child of the devil through imitating, not through being born of him. The point being in verse 7 and 8 is that we enter into a relationship, a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And our hearts are transformed as a result. And when you give your heart to Christ, you're no longer in a state of willful rebellion against God. We are born again into the family of God. Those that are not saved... They imitate the devil. The devil is not like the equal but opposite of Jesus Christ. The devil was, a, was an angel. He's a created being who rebelled against God. And he's still in a state of rebellion even today. Willful rebellion. And so someone who imitates the devil in their willful rebellion, in a spiritual sense, they're children of the devil. And then he says this in the second half of verse 8. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now earlier, if you recall, I said the purpose for Jesus Christ being manifested was to take away our sins. Absolutely true. There's a secondary purpose, and that is that he might destroy the works of the devil. And what that is referring to is the power of the devil. The power, his power to hold you and I under bondage of sin. That's the power that he has. And Jesus Christ not only took away our sins, but he destroyed that power that the devil has over the believer. He rendered the power of sin over our lives inoperable, inert, 
and ineffective. For you and I as a believer, his grip on the child of God has been robbed of its power. It's like he has no more, no more strength in his grip. He can't, he can't really grip you and I. He prowls, you know, the Bible says he prowls about like a roaring lion. But the reality is, for the believer, yeah, he still prowls about like a roaring lion. But he's been defanged and declawed for you and I. He really is. We give him way too much credit. Don't need to give him that much credit. Jesus said this in John 8, verse 34, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And you might talk to an unbeliever and say, Hey, you're a slave to sin. And I bet you they'd say, I'm not a slave to anybody, man. I do what I want. That's what they think anyways. The reality is they're a slave to sin because Satan has his power over them. But for you and I, the believers, Satan's power has been rendered inoperable. And so that's why Paul says in Romans 6, 6, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. We're not, we don't have to be slaves of sin anymore. In Romans 6.12, he says, Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And so now here in verse 9 of chapter 3, John says this, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. That's kind of a that's a that's a that's a meaty sentence. That's a that's a that's a major verse. People can there are some incorrect understandings of this scripture within Christianity. The first misunderstanding of this verse is the concept that I've sinned. The Bible says I don't sin, but I know me. I've sinned. I must not be born again. And so what they'll do is they'll go get born again, again, and again, and born again, again, and again, again. Every time there's an altar call, they're coming up forward to get born again. That's a misunderstanding of this verse. The second misunderstanding of this verse is I've been born of God and I cannot sin. It seeds in me. I, I don't sin anymore. That's term is it's a it's a it's a misunderstanding in, of scripture and it's it's a term known as sinless perfection. Once you've been born again, you, you don't sin anymore. I have a real struggle with that because I honestly don't know how sinless perfection can square with the rest of scriptures. If you look in the New Testament, these these epistles and these they're written to people that are sinners and they're believers. It's written to the church. And they're written to believers, and they talk about sin in the lives of believers who are saved. And so when I think of the sinless perfection, I'm going, just, if you're taking it out of just one of these scriptures, it doesn't match with everything else. It's, not, it's taken out of context. So what do you mean his seed remains in him? Well, to boil it down, John is basically referring to the transformation that takes place in the life of a believer, a person who's born again. We have an old nature from our physical birth. The Bible talks about it as our old man, Romans 6, verse 4. Our flesh, Galatians 5, verse 24. Our corruptible seed, excuse me, our corruptible seed, uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 23. That's our old nature. We received that when we were born physically. The Bible says we were born in sin. But when you and I are born of God, we receive a new nature from our spiritual rebirth. The Bible talks about it in Ephesians 4.24 as the new man. 
Galatians 5 verse 17 talks about the spirit as opposed to the flesh. Here in verse 9, it's referred to as his seed. So we have these two natures. And the problem is, while we're still in our physical bodies, we still deal with those two natures. I struggle with my two natures all the time. Our old nature is corrupted. It's bent towards sin. And so to think I'm, uh, I've got this sinless perfection, man, just a chapter or two before, 1 John 1.8, John said, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. He's talking to believers. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to believers. Hey, if you say you have no sin, you say, well, you're missing it. You're, you're deceiving yourself. The problem is, with these two natures, there's always a struggle. Maybe, I'm sure you guys don't struggle with it, but I'm just confessing me. Okay, I struggle with my two natures. I know you guys don't. You're bitter. But uh, there's always a constant struggle in me of who's going to be more dominant, the old man or the new man. You know what I'm talking about? Who's going who's to be in control today? You know which one's going to be stronger? It's the one you feed. Plain and simple. You feed that old na- nature, he's going to be the dominant one. If you feed your new nature, you'll be the dominant one. That's where Romans 12, 1 and 2 comes in. Daily presenting our bodies a living sacrifice. Daily renewing our minds. Because we have been born of God and have a new nature, we will not, in fact, we cannot be in a state of continual willful rebellion against God. We cannot continue in that sinning, in that, in that way. Now, because the old nature is still with us, we may still give in to temptation and commit sin. And I think everybody in this room can attest to that. What do we do? Well, I love 1 John 1, 9, right? When we sin, we get that conviction of the Holy Spirit. We, get, we, feel, we feel shame. We, we, know, we go to 1 John 1, 9, we confess our sins. And then we repent. And repent means turning away from our sins. And when we do that, we're forgiven and we're cleansed. And we get up and we walk again. Man, that's, a, that's the beauty of a relationship with Jesus Christ. I have this quote, and I wish I could attribute it to somebody. I came across it in my studies. I, did, I don't recall where I got it from, so I have no, no uh, I can't say so-and-so said this, but I love this. No Christian is sinless, but God expects a true believer to sin less. That's true. That's true. So what's the difference between a child of God who falls into occasional sin and the child of the devil who is in a state of willful rebellion against God? And here's another quote. Again, I can't. I don't know who said it. I'll just take claim for it anyways. An unbeliever who sins is a creature sitting against his or her creator, but a believer is a child sinning against his or her father. There's a big difference. There's a big difference. And so, verse 10, he sums it up. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. We didn't talk about that today. The children of God are manifested not only by what they don't do, right, which is willful, habitual, ongoing sin, but what they do do, and that's love. And that's the next half of 1 John, which we're not going to get to this morning. 
So these are some, you know, these are some key things to understand. I, I've always, I, this is like, okay, I've really got to get a grip on this because I know my nature. I know I sin. And yet I read this and say, well, the believer doesn't sin. Whoa, wait a minute. I hope you leave here with a good understanding this morning. And I hope that it actually not discourages you, but encourages you to want to, to wanna, you know, walk in purity because Jesus Christ is returning soon. Man, you look at it, look at the news, man. Things are happening. Things are happening. And things are happening towards a, I would say, towards a one-world government. I mean, you see all kinds of stuff going that direction. And if that's coming, how much sooner is Christ returned for his bride, the church? It's, got, it's that much sooner. And so for you and I, man, we've got to live in that state of expectancy. And if we are living in that state of expectancy, it's going to affect how we live our lives today. Because I know you and I, we want to be more like Jesus Christ. And it's possible through his word and by his Holy Spirit in us. Let's go ahead and go Lord in prayer. And I'll have the worship team coming up.